Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, and science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience, so you can join in and ask questions or just participate in the discussion. This week, we're going to cover interval pacing, and it's Cyrus that's been looking into it. Um, but do we have anything else to cover before then? I finally got feedback on a blog article that I wanted feedback on from a physiotherapist. Uh, well, that would be what you guys would call it. We would call it a physical therapist. You guys would call it a physio, right? Yes. Um, yep. And so I got some feedback from an individual. I've been looking for feedback on in this article for a while. But uh, I think what we're going to do is put that with a couple other topics because we've been mulling over on kind of a debunking type of skepticism skeptics take uh on a number of things so i think we'll just put that back one week and um but as far as interesting anecdotes go um yeah i was spending some time on a facebook forum today um and and of cyclists, it was a very large forum. I won't really get into where I was, but I guess diving into that realm and just kind of seeing, you know, people asking for training advice in Facebook forums. And yeah, I mean, I guess it was some high weeds to wade through. And I guess my take home on that, I tried to offer some advice. And it was funny, like I didn't even get a single upvote <laughs> for the advice that I offered, but I was thinking about it on my ride today, and one thing I was thinking was that the advice for training that you would get on a on a forum or a Facebook page or something like that, to me, seems to potentially run on a spectrum, where the more correct the phrase is, the less helpful it is, and then the more specific the advice is, the less likely it's going to pertain to the individual athlete. And so what I mean by this was the forum was asking just a basic question of how do I increase stamina, you know? And I mean, the basic answer is ride your bike more. Would you guys agree? Um, but the thing is, is like that's that, as we discussed on this, this, po this uh, podcast, we have a whole podcast devoted to basically that is one of the questions and it's much more than just riding your bike so yes it's a the answer is correct that you need to ride your bike more for most people unless you're you know at these high high elite levels but at the same time that advice is so uh vague it's almost useless and then, but and then you would know, see people getting into these, this very, very specific advice. And I'm thinking, well, without knowing details about this guy, then how do you know that advice is even correct? I guess from where I sit and looking at that, it was just a very, it was an epistemological can of worms. If I was going to use some nerdy phrasing there, what, what do you guys think of my take on that and the, my concerns about Training advice on from internet yeah, I forums. I think the issue is the questions like that, which you would 
probably need to read a novel to actually get the right answer and they can't really be answered in a Facebook comment. It's the, the issue there. Yeah, yeah. It's good that people are trying to help by offering advice, but again, it's such a big topic that it's almost like, well, is it going to help them? And you hope it helps, but when you have like 40 answers in there and you're reading through all of them, how do you, if you don't have enough knowledge to understand what you need to do to increase your stamina, then how would you have enough knowledge to pick apart all of those answers and figure out what is the best answer, yep. I guess. <laughs> it's just, just me kind of saying, I mean, obviously everyone knows this, but make sure you, you're aware of what kind of information you're getting on online. And, you know, I have to look at this through a lens of like, am I being intellectually honest here? We're all on a podcast, but even when we have people asking training advice, we're like, that's a really complicated thing to ask. And I think it's fair to go on forums and get information that's food for thought and to learn things about your sport. Um, and I think that would be a little, and that's a little bit different than straight up asking for training advice, um, without, you know, giving many, many details. And I think I looked at that question and I'm thinking I've been doing this for a long time and I wouldn't be able to even start answering that question until I had that person's data in front of me. Yeah. And even then ran them through a couple of months of training to see how they respond. There's mm -hmm. a lot of factors mm -hmm. here. Um, mm -hmm. I think when you're trying to, if you're trying to answer something on a forum, the more knowledge you have, it the, the harder it is to answer because a lot exactly. of it comes down to the nuance of what what is exactly needed for their very specific situation, and it always for me it always just comes back to that that line. It depends. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I saw some good advice for some of the things I saw on there that are a little bit more specific. Uh, like someone was asking about um, whether they should use do erg interval training. And I saw some decent advice around that, but that's a very specific device orientated type of thing as it's not nearly as vague as, or broad, I should say, as, um, how do I increase my stamina? <laughs> so anyways, uh, that was my little bit of a spiel there. And yeah, so I guess we move on to Cyrus yep. and what he's talking about. I you want to introduce your topic? Yeah. So stealing this, your job here, Damien. I'm stealing your job. <laughs> this is uh, yeah something that's been on my mind for a little while now. I can't really think of why. I think it was actually a conversation with an athlete I'm coaching, and she was um, saying at this point, I like doing my intervals this way, which is I think it was a a forty twenty session. Um, and targeting around VO2 max power. And she was saying, I like starting them off way above my VO2 max power. And then just that way I've got plenty of room to die at the end of it for each of these 40 second intervals. And then I can, yeah, I've got some room to, to fall off at the end and then still make the target power for each interval. And then I was sort of started to formulate my response, which was along the lines of, well, that's not really targeting the, the power that you're supposed to be targeting or doing the session, how it was designed to be done. And then as I was sort of doing this, I was thinking, hang on a sec, am, 
is it is it not targeting what we want it to be targeting and what mm-hmm. is what is the actual purpose of doing it at that specific power if she's still doing the the same amount of work over each interval because the average power is the same and work is yeah, the power multiplied by the time so she's doing the same amount of power for the same amount of time same work doesn't matter how she paces it and then I thought ah oh, this is actually something and then I was thinking about the physiology behind what she's doing there and as I've sort of told Jason I'm gonna throw to him for a bit of background on this but everyone will be aware that there's a big lag between when you start a hard interval and when you actually start feeling it once the breathing starts ramping up your ventilation is going up and then your heart rate will elevate too there's a big lag there so that's not immediate and the idea behind how she was doing the intervals is that would ramp up a lot faster and then I was thinking hang on a sec is this not going to be better for what we're looking at here so her ventilation and her heart rate are going to be elevated far earlier throughout the interval and she's spending a greater period of each interval at this high percentage of vo2 max so basically jason if you just wanted to like highlight what is actually happening here why the why you're not immediately taking in as much air at the beginning of the effort as you would be at the end of an effort if it was paced evenly even. Uh, yeah, that has to do with the oxygen deficit, that relationship there where, you know, you, as soon as you hit the start of the interval, let's say you go from 100 watts up to 400 watts. And because of that increase uh, and power, that means that there is an increase in the, what you need for ATP. Um, and then it's a matter of like, well, where does that ATP come from? Well, there's some ATP that's stored in the cell. There's going to be some ET- And then as soon as you burn through that, which can be very quick, uh, like in seconds, as soon as you go through that, then some of that's going to be quickly regenerated. Um, cause the ATP relationship here is it's basically the ATP is um, the energy currency of the cell and it, when ATP goes somewhere there's that's adenosine triphosphate so there's that tri is really imperson- really important there's three phosphates on that molecule and basically what it does is when work needs to happen it will donate this phosphate and then that ATP becomes ADP. So now that ADP needs it before it can do work again, short answer here is it needs to get another phosphate put onto it. And that has an energy cost to it. How you replenish that ATP, it could happen very quickly with uh, phosphocreatine stores. And then of course those diminish very quickly. Those are finite. Uh, and then you could potentially replenish it uh, anaerobically uh, through the, through glycolysis. And then, uh, what you really want is it to be that ATP to be resynthesized aerobically, but because the aerobic system takes a little bit time to get ramped up to speed to throw a metaphor in there. Um, it, yeah, since it needs to take a little bit of time to get ramped up to speed, there's that area there 
um, in the beginning of the interval where your oxygen consumption is not matched to the ATP that is needed for the amount of watts that you're putting out. And this gets into uh, this term called oxygen kinetics and how you can manipulate that. I don't know if you were looking for anything else. Yeah, that's, um, that's the, uh, wanna... the, the crash course and what's actually happening in a cellular level that I wanted to give people. And I think most people on a practical level would be aware of this. If anyone's ever done an interval, they notice that it takes a while for the heart rate shows up on the screen. And if you pay attention next time you're doing an interval, your breathing won't, it won't feel that hard on your lungs until, yeah, at least 20 or 30 seconds into the interval. And then a perfect way to see this in action is if you watch the 100-meter sprint at the Olympics, they'll often barely breathe during the sprint or even better, the 50-meter the swim. They'll either not take a breath or take one breath during the 50-meter swim. And at the end of the swim, they're breathing like crazy. It's not as if it's not – they're not – yeah, they're still generating all of that ATP during it, but there is that lag there before it's actually being the aerobic system is kicking in to supply that energy and then regenerate the those reattach those phosphates to the adenosine diphosphate. So then, yeah, that's the the lag sort of an example of that in a practical sense and where you would see that. So basically, to get back to this topic, if- I'll just want to interject one thing here, Cyrus, yep. um, before we move on is, and people, you know, because we've probably looked at graphs and seen what an oxygen curve looks like within a, a hard interval session. But just for people that might have never seen that, it, to get an idea, it's that curve is going to be really similar to heart rate curve. Yeah. Um, if you're going to think about, you know, having to just all of a sudden ride at 400 watts you could imagine like how the power is just going to spike up and be consistent uh at 400 but that your heart rate would then be increasing slowly in a kind of curvilinear type fashion so for all intents and purposes for this conversation an oxygen curve and a heart rate curve in an interval look very yeah. very similar and for the for the athlete sort of wanting to see an example of this yeah you don't need to go into a lab you can just use your heart rate monitor and it's a good sort of working example of this lag time and yeah the the slow component of the vo2 kinetics as it's referred to in the literature but to relate back to the topic at hand yeah with this i've sort of been thinking if you minimize this time at which it takes to get that uh, ventilation and heart rate to a higher level and that would be done by starting the interval higher at a higher power and finishing at a lower power can this cause gains so the question I was really asking sort of took it back a step then and thought what is the purpose of doing intervals in training in the first place so might uh, get Damien to answer this one. Why are we including intervals? Why aren't we just getting someone to go out and ride around for their four hours, however they like? Yeah, well, on a practical level, it breaks up hard work into manageable chunks. So it enables you to go higher, faster, harder than you would if you just tried to do this over longer periods. So that that's the most practical yeah. reason you would do them. Yeah, um, and then I think... 
yeah, just sort of jump forward. This the science sort of backs up how this this works as well, and you can find a lot on work rest ratios, which we'll touch on a bit later as well, to maximize the amount of time that you're spending at a higher percentage of VO2 max. And yeah, that's basically the idea there is instead of doing 10 minutes really hard, you could do six of a 10 minute block really hard for relatively easy and still get similar effects because you're spending a similar amount of time at a higher percentage of VO2 max. So basically the goal that we're trying to achieve if we're looking for aerobic adaptations and this is what all of the literature has pointed to and what we'll be discussing, I'm sure, in future episodes is we're trying to look for the most amount of time at 90% or above a VO2 max if we're doing a training session. So there's obviously a number of ways uh, you can go, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, is there is there like some vacuuming going on when you guys? Yeah, that's that's vacuuming coming from me. It's not really <laughs> ideal timing, but yeah, seriously. The, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. You'll be able to sound engineer that out there, Damien. No, but I can still hear him clearly. It's fine. Um. What was the question again? Nothing. Uh, we are talking about 90% VO2 max, and that's the the time that we want to be spending above that during a training session is the, the okay. goal for an aerobic session. Yeah. All right. So the if you go into the literature, the arguments are out there that would say that time at or near VO2 max, and that's usually measured from 90% and above of VO2 max, the, the argument in the literature is that this is the more time you spent, you spend at this, uh, in this range during a set of intervals, the better the training outcome will be. Now, this is a whole topic in itself. And it's something, a topic that I'm hoping that we can address down the road because I'm actually, I have a paper on this that's coming out. And when I finally get around to publishing it, it'll be a good one here because that paper really kind of questions this assumption that time at or near VO2 max is the optimal um, thing to focus on for an aerobic interval session. And the thing, and without getting into it too much, time at or near VO2 max is a really good measure for effectiveness because it's just kind of a catch-all um, because you know if there's a lot of time at or near VO2 max during an interval session, then what you're going to get is a very high heart rate. You're going to get a lot of peripheral stress. There's going to be a lot of blood flow. There's going to be high cardiac output. And so if you are focusing on that, you know there is all of these other things that are going on that are causing a lot of stress. So um, one of the attractive things about time at or near VO2 max is that if you do that measure, and let's say you're a scientist and you want to figure out what the best interval session is, well, without this measure, you might have to run a whole training study, right? Because you have, you'll set up two intervals 
sessions and you they you basically yeah. looking have for them performance yeah. outcomes yeah yeah yep. and and but the nice thing about the measure of time at or near vo2 max is that you can do one acute session yep. and get that measure yeah. in a lab that, that's part of what i was worried about when i was digging through this research i was thinking oh i don't know if people are gonna have done these training studies because they're so hard to do Whereas mm-hmm. once I started looking, I thought, oh, no, it's okay. They're just looking for these at these sessions and looking, all right, how much time did they spend at or near VO2 max? And that's a really good indicator and it's quite well accepted now that that's going to lead to the performance gains down the track if you can have a session that's spending a higher percentage at close to VO2 max. Yeah, that's that. That's the theoretical yeah, assumption. Exactly. The, you, you'd be surprised at how few training studies they've actually done looking at this. That, for yeah, that, and I mean, I, th- I I want to say there's probably more reviews out there than actual training studies to back it up. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did find that as well, but I didn't want to go too much into yeah, yeah. into that topic because yeah, yeah we we'll, we'll 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 cover that another day. Yeah, so. exactly. I think for the sake of the talk today, we will assume that this is a correct measure to be looking at, even though there's not as much actually experimental evidence to back this up as you might yeah, think. And there there's is. also obviously a lot of factors in training at a neuromuscular level that it's not the only thing, but in terms of aerobic gains, it's going to be a pretty good indicator that the session's going to have a, uh, a good effect if there's a lot of time at or near VO2 max. Can, can we define like the purpose or the specific set of um, things they're trying to achieve with these intervals? Because just to this point, we haven't discussed that. If you're doing a 20-minute mm-hmm. yes. interval at a lower intensity, yep. you're not going for yep. 90% of VO2 max. Yeah. yeah, and I would say, is that even an interval at this point? I mean, yeah, that's that's another topic. No, so this is for high-intensity interval training. This is your hit sessions where you will be well over FTP or critical power. You're going to be above critical power as well, depending on which threshold we're we're all still using. Um, Trying to improve your maximal aerobic power? Yeah, that's what we're trying to achieve here. Not to be mixed up with sprint intervals yeah, yeah so yeah. these are generally yeah they get their intervals targeting aerobic system and looking for aerobic gains here so yeah basically that's where jason's sort of alluding to the literature has been showing that yeah the if you can spend the highest amount of time possible at 90% of VO2 max or above and obviously there's other things to take into consideration here because if you spend the whole session at that it's going to be a very taxing session and likely a very short session if you're doing that so there's a lot of things to take into account and that's sort of where I was going with this topic in that basically the idea of these intervals and how you might pace them differently to a constant work rate is you're trying to minimize the relationship between the stress on the athlete and the gain that they'll get from the session 
So if you can have a session that's really low stress but high gain, that's the ideal thing. So the athlete can then do the same session repeatedly day after day in theory if it's a low stress for a higher gain. And then, yeah, this is also minimizing the the mental strain on the athlete if if it's not a difficult session but they're getting a, a high gain from it. And then, yeah, these sessions are all quite difficult. So if you're going to be doing these difficult interval sessions, you want to be getting the maximum return for putting in the effort on these sessions. So that's... And it's, this, it's the same theory here as intermittent sprinting efforts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the same in that sense, in that, yeah, the, the training is going to be hard. You want to get the most out of it and you want the athlete to still be able to recover from these sessions so that they can do another session. If you've got, if you're, yeah, there are ways that you could have an athlete complete a session at a high percentage of VO2 max and then be in a grave the next day and not able to do anything for that day or the day after because it's taken such a high toll. Yeah, and what we're talking about here is in a session, uh, you're looking at a maximum between 20 and 30 minutes if you're a highly trained athlete. Yeah, and that's basically, yeah, if you look at any interval session, it gets to a point where you think, well, why don't, like, if I'm trying to design a session to spend the maximal time at 90% of VO2 max or above, there's only so many ways you can so many efforts you can do before it's impossible to get back over that because of the muscle fiber fatigue basically and a, a lot of other factors as as well for why you can't just go right i'm going to do three minute vo2 max intervals and i'm going to do 24 of them it's just not possible <laughs> in in the in the one session so we're trying to sort of design a session here and that's what i've been looking at the the research around is how you can design a session that you're not having a huge amount of time spent doing the work and the work in this sense is intervals so you're not having a huge amount of on time i sort of referred to it with my athletes as on and off time so the on time in a sprint session might be two minutes in total, but it's a pretty hard session because that two minutes is made up of five second and 10 second sprints. Whereas the on time in a sweet spot session might be three hours. Um, So it's going to depend on this. So these kind of sessions that we're looking at today, the high intensity interval training, generally 20 to 30 minutes is the max that you can get. And I I have an example here as well, because I've been doing this recently with a few athletes and uh, say I prescribed 25 minutes of on time work of of the work interval, then modeling VO2. Five by five. Correct. It was a five (laughs) by five. (laughs) It was Jason's influence. Um, And when modeling the VO2 max response at that 90% or above, it was, uh, I think, say the first session was maybe 18 minutes. Yep. above 90 percent yep. so there's this is the lag in some ways yeah. that we're trying to get around and that yep. that wasted effort and time between and also yeah, what's yes yeah. something to note there is a fair portion of that 18 minutes is probably still coming in the off time because we've talked about the lag at the start mm. of an interval but there's also the 
Epoch, we were referring to it as. I'm not sh- even sure if that's still what's used. So that's ex- excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. So that mm-hmm. sort of is more if you would stop completely. Obviously, we're still riding, so it's not post-exercise. But at the end of an interval, your heart rate's still elevated. It's not as if you stop the interval and then it still goes straight down. And same thing for ventilation. It's not like that goes straight down. So the... The oxygen delivery is still quite high in that recovery phase of each interval. So that was another thing I sort of came across in these. And that's where it will... Yeah, it's not directly just the the on time that's going to be leading to benefits. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show. And to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too, We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. These studies that I've looked at, they're not training studies, so that's important to note. They are Mm -hmm. just looking at how much of this session was spent at VO2 max and or at or close to. And what they've done basically... The majority of these have looked at either a declining power output protocol, a controlled power output protocol, and then an increasing power output. So the controlled is just a steady, if you're doing 400 watts for a three-minute interval, it's 400 watts the whole way. The declining varies across each study, but you generally may be starting at 120% of that 400 watts Mm -hmm. so the idea is that you're choosing to do these intervals at your maximum aerobic power which roughly will correspond to your power output at vo2 max and this is yeah in this instance if it's a declining protocol they're starting at between 115 and 120 percent of vo2 max power and then declining throughout the interval so that it's the same average power throughout so the same work is being done per interval but Mm -hmm. it's not a steady work rate it's declining throughout and some of these were done with a ramp decline others were done with a step decline the thing to note here is if you have an athlete doing these out on the road it's going to be hard to implement a perfect ramp or a perfect step either way so Mm -hmm. we're kind of assuming that the athlete will be going a lot just off feel in that instance because it's unless they're hitting lap every 10 seconds or that kind of thing but often you'll just see an athlete will be doing like a sort of said in the anecdote at the start just starting out with their average a lot higher and then just seeing it slowly drop to the target power throughout so the studies i'll get into some results of these now unfortunately there's not a lot of them done with trained 
athletes. No. But, um, Which is an important caveat to kind of stop and discuss real quick because um, if they're measuring oxygen and how the oxygen consumption responds to these decrease in power over time, this spike in power and then the decrease in power, um, they're basically measuring uh, oxygen kinetics. And oxygen kinetics between trained and untrained athletes are very different. If you're trained, your oxygen kinetics respond quicker. And so when I saw the, there was a few papers that were not looking at trained athletes, I was like, eh. Yeah. Do I do I really read much more into this than just the abstract? And so I yeah I tried to stick with the papers that were, you know, VO two maxes of sixty and above. Yeah. Hopefully at and, least. So. And that is a constant issue that we face in the exercise physiology world. Is yeah when you are looking at papers it can be difficult to find multiple papers with trained athletes targeting sort of specific areas like this one it's it's not an area with a lot of research done so it's often quite difficult to find within that small body of research many papers on trained athletes and obviously as we've sort of discussed before you don't want to be basing your training or your program prescription off just one paper. You sort of want to be seeing these replication studies and a greater body of evidence to support that. So in this case, it is a little tricky because there isn't too many. But what I have seen in the stuff I have been able to find is that the data is suggesting that these sessions where there is a declining power output protocol are leading to increases in time spent at high percentages of VO2 max. So that was found in a Lisboa paper out of Brazil, which is always good to see exercise physiology stuff not from Scandinavia because <laughs> the majority of it does seem to be from Scandinavia. Or, or Australia. Or Australia, where the next one's Or New Zealand. From. Yeah. So or the, the UK. The or the UK. The next one from Australia that I found was with trained male cyclists. So the average VO2 max was 60. So we're starting to get somewhere there. And that's a Zad out at all. I would imagine. Yep. That's a Jeremiah Pfeiffer's last author on that. My co-supervisor for my PhD. So they found that basically the similar thing, but theirs was more looking at a self pacing strategy and then comparing that to a controlled pacing strategy where yeah the the pace has been set for them so basically comparing all out to the computer generated this is what you should be able to do for this amount of time interestingly the all out pacing strategy they did note that it wasn't very steady which you can sort of expect from athletes because they're not robots so they're not able to just set an exact steady pace throughout an interval but they did notice that the average so this is one where the um the actual work for the all-out pacing strategy was lower than the computer generated pacing strategy but they still experienced a higher time at higher percentage of vo2 max 
So that's an interesting one where you they're actually doing lower power and experiencing a higher time at that high percentage. And this, but also important to note there that that all outpacing strategy they had a much higher RPE as well, which is definitely something you need to factor into your interval sessions. Yeah, so there was three pacing strategies in that yep. paper, right? I think we should go into that that protocol a little bit and just kind of point out what we're dealing with in in terms of the papers that are out out there. Yeah. Um, and so that I mean, like you said, it's hard to come across these papers and figure out um, papers that are looking at this. And that paper is probably one of the best papers I've seen in terms of. Yeah. interval pacing but that one is really good in the sense that it's looking at at it through the lens of like you what things that actual athletes would do the way they would actually yeah. pace it like you can actually go out and throw down each one of these efforts as hard as you can and i think it was three three minute yeah. efforts and right I, that was interesting i read this and i thought right this is where jason has got his because we talked about this on another podcast about session failure when you're trying mm-hmm. to complete a session to the numbers and you brought up that you you prescribe your intervals as all out and i thought right this is I can see this is well. No, I don't. I have well. well it's, it's it's well. This is where I wanted to get into the clarification on that paper, right? Because yeah. there's the all out. The when they say pace all out pacing, that means that there's three thirty. There's three 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 minute efforts in there. That means that every single one of those efforts, you're pacing it separately, and every single one is the hard, as hard as you can go. Yeah. Right, and then there is the the other pacing style, which, which is basically, which I prescribe to my athletes more regularly, is the if you had three three minute efforts like that, then I would tell them you would want to have the highest average watts across all three of the work intervals, and that's yeah. the other um, pacing scheme that they have in there. And then the third is the computer generated, which is basically like an erg. Yeah. File like that's and like I said, it's probably the best paper I've seen out there that compares all these different types of pacing strategies. Because what your athlete was doing was basically the all out, if I'm not mistaken. But the thing is, is even though it's probably the best paper, it's still not what you would see in a real interval session. Yeah, and it's three three minute efforts, and that's. I think it's pretty well that that like when you talk about the on time, it's only nine minutes, and what you generally want to see is eighteen to twenty seven, twenty five. I don't know, yeah. depending on who you're talking to, in terms of uh, length of on intervals for yeah, aerobic and sessions. I think that's that's the, that's the struggle with the with the literature right yeah. now on this. And the Lisbell paper is a good paper, and it's good basic science. But it runs even to into more practical problems when yeah. if you were going to try to apply it. Yeah. So exactly, and that's what I wanted to sort of, and we'll we'll get it to it at the end when we we get practical with it. But I think it's important to. It's so easy to look at these papers and think, "Wow, that's super cool. That's going to work better than what I'm doing." But it's important to think is this actually possible for an athlete like can i even do this kind of thing with an athlete because there's 
there's so many things that would work better than what I'm doing, but the they're not actually an athlete's not going to be able to do it. And as we know, the best program is a program you can stick to. So there's no yeah. use prescribing these sessions with perfect declines or with certain target powers that just aren't actually going to be practical in a real life training scenario. Yeah, that like for example, that Lisbon paper, right? And I and I and I don't want to make it come off like I'm I'm giving them an unfair criticism here, but in order to for them to figure out all the ramps in the paper that I was reading, it was three, four, five tests or something yeah. like that to get all the different levels set up for like the high ramp and yeah. down to the bottom ramp you know and they had yeah. to do some critical power tests of vo2 max tests a couple time to exhaustion tests and i'm thinking well this is great to kind of explore the basic science side of things but in real life um it doesn't make any sense to do all those testing sessions to, to yeah, figure out think, how to do those interval sessions because you're just going to tr- basically train yourself out of them because you're going to you're going to gain fitness which is the point yeah, and then then you'd have to go retest and do all those levels again. Yeah, right? I did so. I did note that, but what you're sort of hoping in that scenario is that as uh, someone that can sort of deduce a lot of it from the data that you already have, you're hoping that you're able to sort of shortcut a lot of that testing. But yeah, if you're going to do it as specifically as they've got set out in the paper, and that's kind of what you have to do to get the same results as what are shown in the paper then yeah there's going to be a lot of testing required and that in itself may not be practical and is likely not to be practical for a lot of athletes um just quickly i wanted to bring up up one study that is going in the opposite direction that's just come out this year from wammer et al and that was unfortunately in untrained athletes Mm -hmm. and they did quite a similar protocol with the control, the incline and the decline. And they found statistically no differences and, but it was very noticeable that there was some serious trends going on with, within those non differences statistically but unfortunately, quite a small sample size, so you're not going to get much statistical power out of that. So the trend was that the decline was going to result in more time spent at a high percentage of VO2 max. So, but like the variation between those groups were crazy in that, like the yeah the average seconds at or above ninety percent the the diff, the standard deviation is just like nearly 50% of the actual, the mean. So it's, um yeah, in that case, it's annoying when you find those kind of studies, which are set out really well, but clearly just the, the participants aren't what we're looking for to actually get something that's useful to apply. Um, so yeah, basically we're trying to now sort of relate all of, of that data to how you would use it practically and i think one thing i sort of came to the conclusion as i was going through all of this and i found a few other papers because a lot of papers have studied interval pacing but not so much decline or an incline but there's intervals 
which are a lot self-paced, like the one we were just referring to, where it's going to be very unsteady pacing if an athlete is prescribing that, particularly if they're blinded to the to the numbers so they can't see it. They're going to be up and down. Um, and also there's other ones which are interesting uh, attached to an erg, they had the interval paced out like a sine wave or shark teeth so that it was sort of up and down throughout the interval rather than a steady pacing and but the average power was the same and they also found that if you have variable pacing within an interval you're going to be spending a higher percent of time at higher VO2 and higher heart rate as well because they're often fairly closely correlated. And then another example of this is pulses within intervals. So I'm sure most have seen interval sessions where you have, typically these are seen in longer intervals where you'll have your pulses within where the, the power is increased or spiked. And these also have been shown to elicit that higher time spent at higher VO2. So I think the thing that we have to ask here is at what point do you start getting to intervals within intervals? If you're prescribing these changes within power within the work part of an interval, are you just seeing basically prescribing an interval within an interval? So obviously an interval session, as we said at the beginning, is a way to to break up that work into manageable blocks. And if you're then breaking up the work within the work and you're breaking up the interval into smaller blocks again, does this at a point just overload the athlete and is the actual gains that they're going to be getting from this going to be something that's useful for the amount of time that they're going to be spending trying to pace all of these things? So I'd be interested, Damien, on what your thoughts on that are. I'm just thinking part of this discussion needs to be programming for different types of athletes, yeah. not just the, the physiological part, but the psychological part. And I think you touched on this at the start with the athlete that you're referencing, how they prefer to do it this type of way yeah. uh, because it matches how they prefer to put power out or whatever. But it, it's this thing of also matching the type of rider, like so physiologically, whether their um, muscle fiber type leans on the faster side or the slower, uh, fast or slow twitch side, yeah. and then prescribing to that because that impacts not only the work you do, but then the recovery in the days yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And that's something that I, that's sort of one of the conclusions I was coming to from all of this was that I don't think I would be inclined to prescribe it to all of my athletes but i i think i'm definitely after looking into this more uh, it's something i'll discuss with athletes and make it an option and if it's something then i'll if it's something that they say yeah i would pref- i do like doing it that way or no i just want to have exactly what number you give me is what i'm going to hold the whole effort depending on which way they lean and often it's somewhere in the middle uh, i think I would have that discussion and sort of look at, all right, do I need to change the target power for the interval because I know that they're going to be doing the variable pacing or with some athletes that are that fast twitch dominant athlete, if I'm giving them a 30-30 session or 
or forty twenties even, and they're essentially just doing a sprint and then riding the rest of the interval at zone two. That might be somewhere where it's an extreme, and I have to say, look, this isn't. I'm not sure that this is actually going to be targeting what we want it to be targeting, but I think it's definitely an option I'd be giving to athletes now, uh, having read all of this stuff. And I think before I was a lot more in the camp of this is the work that I want you to be able to do for each of these intervals, whereas now it would more be, okay, I don't mind as long as you get that amount of work done, so that average power for that time. I don't mind so much if you want to pace it variably. And it is that case of this is just another thing to put into the toolbox, just another option that may match a situation and athlete better at a certain time of the year. Um, But I've got something interesting. I was watching something recently and it was a pro cyclist. I won't mention their name, but they, they did well in the tour just recently. And they were talking about some four by four intervals that they did in the lead up uh, to the tour. And they were doing them. They weren't evenly paced. They were doing first two minutes at five watts per kilogram, the next one and a half minutes at six watts, and the last 30 seconds at seven watts per kilogram. Yeah. And I was really, and I'm, I'm still am really puzzled as to why you would do it, why you would do it in that order. And, and for me, it does, it comes down to this thing of that's an interval in an interval and potentially one thing is going to override the other. Yeah. And that's the research on the inclining stuff wasn't really supporting that it's that it wasn't, it was interesting The inclining intervals is something I should have mentioned. They weren't worse than the controlled intervals, but they weren't better. So better in terms of time the, at... Uh, yeah, time at 90% VO2 max. Sorry. So yeah, they weren't showing more percent, more time at that percentage. So then I sort of asked the question, well, why would you do it like that? And one answer for that is RPE, because then you're spending a higher percentage of that interval quite comfortable. Mm. Yeah, at, if it's at, not at that any- level, it would be below threshold and then it would be probably at yep. threshold and then just above for 30 seconds which seems very manageable yep. for four minutes yeah yeah exactly but the thing to note there is if these studies are showing that it's not going to be any worse than the controlled in terms of percentage of time at 90 percent or above then if the if it's less mental stress on the athlete or even physical stress because they're spending less time above threshold, then it might be something that could be worthwhile. I think the thing we'd need to see there is, yeah, more work with the trained athletes. And then that is an example there of where you would be getting that lag after the effort. So a lot of the recovery time would be spent at a high percentage of VO2 max as you're regenerating that ATP after the hard finish of the effort. Yeah, and and here I think it's important to sort of talk about the non-physiological stuff if you have an, a variable paced effort that is say hard start and then backs off a little bit it's good for simulation specific simulating specific race situations yeah. i think that they're they're yeah. going to mimic a lot of different type disciplines uh depending on the length of you know of the hard part and the easier part um which is really important for me, it's a really important part of my coaching to do that from time to time so people have experience doing that. So beyond all the other stuff, I think that they do play a role. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the original conversation I had with the athlete. 
And she was saying, and I said, oh, why are you doing them like that? And she said, oh, because it's so much more like a race. If she's doing 40-20s, it's simulating and she's doing them starting way harder and then gradually getting worse. It's simulating attacking because you're attacking at well over the power that you're going to hold for the first minute of your attack and then it's slowly dropping off. And she said, oh, it's just so that it simulates a race. And I thought, ah, oh, that's actually, there's some merit there that's worth talking about and then also yeah conversely that inclining interval if the power is increasing is simulating the finish of a race where you might be yeah in an uphill finish where there's a lead out that's getting progressively faster and then you're sprinting the last 30 seconds to a minute of that or yeah doing that at a really high power that's going to be simulating it in that sense as well so i think yeah basically what i'm what I've got out of this is not to immediately think oh, that's that's wrong the way someone's doing it if it's variably paced because there is a lot of good rationale here for why you might variably pace an effort both on the physiological side and the mental side for the athlete. Now, in a practical sense, we've been talking about maximal aerobic power, but what about... Yep. You know, what are the kind of conditions around setting up an interval session like this? What what are the, the in a practical sense, when you're programming these, what do they look like? Um, the only thing that I can initially think of is that everything just ha- at first has to be above threshold. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. This, so is, this is all my, in the severe domain. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I was going to, about to say that they're ensuring that they're these that's part of the testing around these studies. They're defining that severe domain and making sure that the bottom of the decline at the end of the effort is the top of, uh, is the bottom of the severe domain. Sorry. Yeah. And the thing is, is that, but the, again, it comes back into like what those experiments look like compared to like what real life is. Um, yeah. Though what the, I think they only had like maybe three, two intervals in those sessions yeah. at those intensities yeah and then so, the thing is is like if yeah. you do the maximal all-out paced strategy um and you're doing five by fives or you're doing six by threes or something like that it's pretty good pretty good chance that by the time you get to that fifth or sixth, you are seeing power numbers that are maybe even below threshold if the, yep. but the but the effort's going to feel the same. The RPE will be the same. The heart rate yep. will be matched. So, um, and yep. this gets into um, I'm trying to get in, inter, interject in here that power is great, but as we see here with this measure of time at or near VO2 max, one thing we have to be careful with, and I get into this as well. But again, now that I've done the research that I've done. Uh, in the lab and seen outcomes, uh, you know, with power, we might be overemphasizing how important the watts or the work that is done during the interval uh, relates to the benefit that's from the interval. Yeah, and I think that's something I've taken out of this as well. And obviously, because it's because it's internal stress, you're looking for internal stress. Exactly. Right, you're looking for internal yeah. load, um, and power is a measure of, of external load. Yeah, and what so about this using is, this, is, this? Well, I'm just uh, the one. That, yeah, so I just wanted to say that okay. the the, okay. the uh, power is a good measure of fitness, but it doesn't necessarily all the time 
going to be a great measure of how well you did in the interval session in terms of how much stimulation you got. Yeah. So and the perfect example of that is obviously environment, like mm-hmm. temperature yeah, well, or alti- altitude as well, which we've yeah, talked about before. But I think this is another reason to have the discussion with your athletes around not being too tied into the power numbers or the TSS numbers. Cause that's yeah, something that I know a few of my athletes would not agree to do any of these variable pacing efforts if they're going to have to accept that their average power for the effort might be a bit lower. They'd say, no, no, not a chance. I want my average power to be as high as possible. End of story. I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I track my interval power for my athletes so that I have an idea where their fitness is. And if they were going to do all out power, um, pacing strategy, then that might throw a wrench in it a little bit, but it's not to say I I wouldn't use it and it gets into a big can of worms there. But the whole idea of the, we have to be careful, especially with the athletes when they're doing high intensity interval training and they start seeing that their power isn't exactly where they want, or they're not on an upward trajectory. And we get it. we had this discussion with failure and they just quit the, the, the interval session because they can't get the numbers they want. And if it's not because of fatigue, which if with good management of load, there sh- should be a very low risk of, um, overtraining and fatigue in the, in the wrong spot, I think. But, um, I, yeah, we have to be careful with intervals, especially when you're looking at this pacing strategy that, that you don't overemphasize the Watts that are done in it. And this is also why it gets into like, we could, we can, we can have a fight about this if you want, but I really don't like giving targets for, for hit. Cause I think, I just think you're, it's just, uh, and it gets to why I don't like erg files. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're opening up a big can of worms, but, uh, um, um, but related to that, what I was trying to say before, have either of you two heard about using heart rate as a proxy for, uh, the VO2 max. So above 90% of maximal heart rate, uh, as a proxy for the, the response, the VO2 max response. No, I hadn't looked at too much of the research, but anecdotally, I would say I would maybe even subconsciously be doing that on my own VO2 sessions. I want to be seeing my heart rate getting getting around that number. Um, so that's an interesting conversation uh, because yeah, I think I would agree with, in one sense, I would agree with Cyrus in that when I have, when I'm doing intervals, I have my heart rate up and I'm watching that to see if it, how high it's getting. But there's sometimes the, when the heart rate and the RPE are not matching each other, the heart, heart rate and RPE, depending on your fitness, isn't always going to be linear either. Um, and that gets into a long discussion as well. But I think Damien, are you talking more in the sense of like, what your analysis looks like afterwards i think analysis is part of it but okay just a bit of a check when you're doing it as well um yeah yeah uh, it, it is does have those same sort of caveats that you mm-hmm. would put on power and you know it has its own specific um conditions around it to know that it's it's all working properly but um yeah just as a proxy for the response at the time as as much as the the analysis mm-hmm. it's tricky um, 
some, I mean, I think it's a good thing to kind of pay attention to, but again, like you said, the always having the caveat there of, you know, I can't hit, you know, did you get through the interval session and you're like, oh, I couldn't hit the heart rate numbers that I would normally hit in, in the session. Um, and I mean, is that the, is that the worst thing in the world? I mean, right. Yeah. And I think another sort of place that comes in is, and this is a discussion we've had before is training on the flats versus climbs. So my intervals that I'm doing on the canal here often, yeah, they're not amazing power numbers, but the heart rate will generally be higher than it might've been on a climb. And I'd be pretty strongly suspecting that the VO2 would probably be higher than the same out power output on a climb as well. And um, yeah, that's sort of another reason and a good thing to remind athletes is that, yeah, just because the power numbers aren't that high doesn't mean the training response isn't going to be what you want it to be, I think. That's yeah. an important takeaway. But this this from is the for me here. analyzing where I've, I'm leaning more on modeled VO2 max uh, when I'm looking at um, how successful a session was. And how um, how are yeah. so how are you getting where are you getting that and how is it done? Because when I heard this, I was like, mm. can you take us through that, Damien? Well, it's it's uh, WKO five. Okay. And uh, the underlying model. It must have been done by Coggan. Hmm. So it's not like I'm not. It's like anything. I'm not leaning on it a lot, but mm-hmm. as far as looking at potentially what it's doing, um, and how it's how it's related to the power that's being done as well, especially when you're at the start of a block and you want to prescribe what's coming next, you want some progression, and you and you want to give better feedback to the athlete so they know what they're doing is working or it's not working. And that, for me, that, that really helps that conversation and, and guides that process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's always going to be the same problem issue here. Um, how accurate is the data that you're getting and how much does it mean and fluctuate within a physiological system? And yeah, that's always the big question mark. Yeah. But, but what's the alternative? That's, that's the exactly, thing that I, exactly. I've come back to. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's exactly how I kind of looked at this Zadow at all paper. You know, my criticism here is that there's only three, three minute efforts, but what's my alternative? Where's, where, what else is out there that I can base my decision off of? Well, in, in lieu of that, the Zadow paper satisfies what I need for now and making my decisions around how, you know, all out pacing versus uh, erg pacing versus uh, you know, maximal pacing across the effort. So um, yeah, gets into a sticky sticky areas <laughs> when you get down into deep dive, and that that's that's what we you know that's what the whole purpose of doing the deep dive on the topics that we do are. Um, hopefully, we not people don't walk away being totally nihilistic, but uh, but with a little bit more to, food for thought, right? Yeah, I think that's the. The thing with these is you don't get a firm, this is the answer, everyone should do this, or we wouldn't have the discussion about it. (laughs) We're having the discussions about things that end up 
getting a bit wishy-washy the further down you go because that's the reason that they're not set in stone already. Uh, I think like <laughs> if we would just we could have an hour-long discussion about why you should use clip-in pedals because I think it's already pretty well known that they're beneficial. Whereas, yeah, these are the kind of things that we're not a hundred percent sure either way. So that's why once you get down into the weeds, you often don't walk away with any more answers and you have questions, but there's often a lot that you can use and apply and inform your athletes so that they're better aware of what the training they're doing is actually doing within their body. Yeah. Or you could just read that latest review and then it says five by fives are the best. So you just always prescribe. (laughs) That's what you do, Jason, isn't it? No, it's not. (laughs) It was my, my, yeah, my, my paper was five by fours, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just say my two cents about the, the application of what are we calling these? The hard start. Yeah. Hard hard start intervals. intervals. Yeah, um, I prescribe for my athletes most of the time. I prescribe the try to maximize your average watts across all of the session. And you know, when I saw that this Zadile paper, I was like, "Oh, that's really cool!" And I'm gonna try it. And and so I didn't do it with three intervals. I did it with six intervals, and I did it with one of my higher end athletes, and she was getting ready for. A, a big grand fondo that she was going to qualify for worlds. And I, and we do our intervals together here in Perth. And so I pulled her aside and I said, today you're going to pace these a little bit differently. You're just going to go out and do every single one of these as hard as you can. And what you find out with is these, again, these things look really great on paper. And, but it's, it's really, really, it's a really, really hard interval session for her. To, to do it that yeah, way that's, that's the cool. one thing and then the other thing is is with my athletes because they've been pacing it that other way i also think it's really really hard to break them out of that habit of not looking at their power meter or caring about the power numbers yeah there are a few different ways to roll intervals like this out like say you do have six by three minutes or whatever and you set the target for the first one Mm-hmm. And then yep. with the same idea that they're, then you're trying to get them to give themselves an RPE, to notice what they're feeling, to mark a point on the road that they hit, and then kind of forgetting about it and then trying to just match those feelings for the rest of the time. So, you know, it's like hitting a C note and when you're, when you're singing to try and hit that note yeah. again, but then you're doing it from in, inside yourself. No, one thing I was, I was going to say about the, the Zadal paper that's handy in how papers kind of can sometimes give you a different message than what they're really intending. Um, I, I thought the Zadal paper was really handy because a lot of times they'll have new athletes come on and I'll, and they won't really know how to pace five by fives or six by threes or any of these sessions that I would prescribe them. And I say, let's wax on, wax off. It's just like Karate Kid. Like you, you, you're going to go into this first session, you're going to screw up the pacing, but you're going to learn how to do it. And the Zadal paper for me tells me that it's okay if they mess up that pacing. If they go out too hard and then just decays over time, then, okay, well, I'm a little bit more confident that it's not the end of the world for them and might actually be better potentially. 
and though, and it gets into the, I don't know if I mentioned this before. I, I mentioned it in a previous podcast, but I didn't mention it here it's in terms of like, why don't I prescribe all outpacing uh, intervals every single session for my athletes? If I know that the time at or near VO2 max is higher, potentially when the pacing's like that, and it just comes down to s- sustainability. I don't think athletes yeah. are going to be able to do. Well, that, not all athletes are going to be do be able to do their pacing like that every single session. That you're just going to burn them out. Yeah, the RPE, yeah. like something you can see across all the papers, the RPE is so much higher mm-hmm. for those the the majority of the time. And and yeah, you can't have athletes doing all out sessions every day or even five days a week if they've got their two recovery days because they're just going to get mentally fatigued so so quickly from going oh this is another day where i have to go as hard as i can possibly go Mm -hmm. so uh, this is where it gets into the the prescription the i hate to to make that art versus science comparison but it does get into a little bit of the expertise or you know the wisdom of coaching uh of and and knowing your athlete Mm -hmm. because a lot of this is going to come down to some athletes really just love smashing themselves and this is an an opportunity to just allow them to do that whereas other athletes thrive off that exact prescription and being told what to do but but tell me if if an athlete tells you they don't like a session will you prescribe more of them (laughs) no (laughs) uh i have a lot of athletes that tell me i i really love 30 30s just give me lots of 30 30 30s or or whatever session but and then you it, do a five by four. Gets to a point. <laughs> yeah. It gets to a point where I start thinking, I don't want them to hate this if I give them too much because then they're going to get to the point where they don't like any sessions. So I think, yeah, variability is also, uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to discuss that too much, but that's obviously a very important part of any training program as well. Yeah. Cool. Any, any final comments to wrap up here? I think we've covered that pretty well. Jason, any final comments uh, uh no other comments and i felt like uh my my thoughts were pretty sporadic today so hopefully people are okay with that but um yeah it was otherwise it's interesting topic and good to to pick apart yeah i i definitely enjoyed that i learned a couple of new things from both of you so thank you and uh thanks for all the research cyrus and we shall end it here and uh the big thing here that i want to say is that uh you can join us on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, we're Cycling Club Pod, or Instagram, we're Cycling Performance Club. You'll find out when these episodes get published, and you'll also find out when we have our weekly call, which does change sometimes. Uh, but other than that, thanks for listening. We're, we're also on Facebook. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for all the boomers out there. <laughs> all right. Oh. Thanks, guys. All right. Cheers.